Alicia. Hi, Mary. What's up today? Uh, talk a little bit about fluency. What do you think? Fluency. I love that topic. What's on your mind? Uh, well, you and I um, were able to go see Timothy Rosinski a couple months back, and it just kind of re-sparked some interest in the importance of, of fluency related to comprehension and just overall reading in general. And so I thought we could talk about that today. He has a new book out, which is exciting, with some great strategies in it. I love his new book. As a matter of fact, the title of the book is The Mega Book of Fluency, Strategies and Texts to Engage All Readers. And I have that one on Kindle, and I think you have a hard copy, right? I do. Okay. And that book is filled with great strategies and some background. And um, you have a book that you're checking out today. What book is that? I do. I went back to, um, it's called The Best Practices in Literacy Instruction. It's in its fifth edition, um, and it's edited by Linda Gambrell and Leslie Morrow. And it has a section in here that talks about the principles of fluency instruction that Dr. Rosinski also refers to in his new book. So... I thought we would just maybe hit on those four um, four principles. Okay. And talk about shall it. Shall we? Um, bef- right before we do that, shall we talk about fluency as the bridge? Yes. You know, we talk about fluency being the bridge, and to me, that means that when kids are learning to decode and identify words rapidly, then they will need to do that fluently so that they can comprehend what they're reading. Otherwise, they are using a lot of cognitive energy with decoding yes is that how you would um characterize it yes i think that's that's perfectly said okay um because it takes a lot of brain power and stamina and energy just for the comprehension piece exactly and fluency is also part of our reading um standards yes common core standards yes so it's good to point that out all right so do you want to start with the first principle you have there so um in the best practices book if if anyone has it it's on page 272 and it um it's just a section it's titled principles of fluency instruction and um timothy rosinski just has four basic principles that he he really talks about and the first one is just the opportunity for students to be able to listen to a skilled reader who is fluent and for that to be modeled. And that could be done in many ways, through a read-aloud, songs, poems. I just kind of think about as a classroom teacher all of the opportunities that we had to um, read aloud to our students and for them to hear fluent reading across content areas, not just during that, that literacy block. Across content areas, I think that's really important. And also, I'm reading um, in his book right now about modeled reading, and it doesn't have to be a, a long piece. It could be a poem. I know we talk about that a lot. We love using poetry. Um, you can easily change your voice in a poem to convey different moods or to make it sound uh, your voice sound different, your um, your intonation sound different. And he also points out, Rosinski in his Mega Fluency book, that we need to take the time to discuss why our reading is fluent and how it makes it easier for listeners to understand and enjoy the reading. What do you think about that? Um, I, I completely agree. And the younger that you start that, the more habitual that becomes for young readers. If you can catch those fluency gaps early, it doesn't become a habit later, and it's it's easier to fix. 
fluency gaps, right. Mm -hmm. And also that just, you know, it's fun with these kinds of books because you keep making connections every time you read. (laughs) I just made a connection to this um, line that he has about discussing why our reading is fluent and how fluent reading makes it easier for listeners. Just like we teach our kids that fluency with segmenting and encoding print makes it easier for people to read and understand your writing. So you could easily make that connection to kids, but because oral reading isn't, you don't see it. So it's not always something that the kids are thinking about. So I think that's why you definitely want to make that explicit. So his second principle talks about um, providing students with support while they themselves are reading aloud. And so just kind of listening to the fluency while they're reading the text themselves, um, supporting them, whether you're, he talks about maybe choral reading with a group, um, paired reading with a partner, or just kind of listening to themselves to themselves read if, if they have been recorded previously. And just like you just said a minute ago, being aware of that, they know what that should sound like because it's been modeled for them already. They, um, they know what that should sound like when they're reading. I think it's, it's hard to be fluent if it's never been modeled. And so the principle two goes back to his, his first principle. You know, they, they have to know what that sounds like in order to, to do it the, for themselves. And they have to have time to practice that with assistance. Okay, so let's take a step back for just a second and talk about choral reading because he does talk about that. But it seems like sometimes choral reading, there are some misconceptions around its place, its value, its worth. So what do you think about that? Um, I think it depends on the purpose and the the um, intended outcome for the reader at that time. What are you, what is the focus? What do you want that reader to pick up by the end of that lesson? Why are you doing it? Um, and maybe how often is it done? Does it replace another reading behavior? Or is it used to enhance another reading behavior? So like if, if a student is reading um, staccato or choppy, would that be a good strategy to use to model fluent reading in a text, to do it chorally so that you can model and so students can practice together what, that, what that's supposed to sound like? Okay. I, um, I think also for the really struggling reader, that choral reading provides them with an opportunity just to hear text being read the way that it's meant to be because they spend so much time practicing and practicing um, reading different texts, even ones that are at their instructional level, and they might continue to struggle because of some difficulties they have with decoding or with recognizing sight words. And so I know that I have some kids who love to choral read poems because when they do that, they feel like they hear themselves reading and they understand what it's like to read something the way that it's intended to sound. They don't really have that many opportunities to do that in their classroom. Okay, so um, when would you use choral reading when you're a teacher or when you um, work with your uh, teachers in schools? Uh, We have done it in um, small guided reading groups for a purpose. Sometimes it's to attend to punctuation in a text. We'll kind of read that together, how it should sound if we're, if we're taking on the, um, the dialogue of a character mm-hmm. um, to kind of see how the meaning changes. We've done that together. Um, we have done poems. Um, Dr. David Page has a choral reading plan 
that uh, we have done in, in some of our schools. And that was to make that that text equitable to all of the um, the students in the room who may not have the reading ability at the time to read text at their grade level. So it was a way to give access to that grade level text that maybe some of the kids could not read and understand on their own. Base. I know I've used um, the strategy that Dr. Page outlines in his article for the ILA, and we can link that, I suppose, to our um, podcast. But that choral reading ahead of content instruction helps so many kids because they don't understand the vocabulary of the passage, or they don't have background knowledge around the passage, and that particular process allows them to do that. So I really think it provides access to for lots of kids, not just... um, you know, English learners I work with, and we know that, but there are a lot of kids that are sort of lacking some of the academic um, concepts. And it really gave time to to stop and talk about the content, like you were saying. Maybe we would have not taken that time to do that so that they were preloaded. Right, and the students can observe themselves improving. That's another thing, because you can easily record a choral reading session, I do that with my students too. I'll record them and they'll just laugh because they hear how they're not together at all. And um, they know who's doing it. And it's just really, it could be funny and and just, um, you know, really a positive experience. But there aren't always times when they can see their growth as rapidly as they can when they're choral reading. One thing I want to make sure that I point out, because I've had students in grad classes who were confused about this. The choral reading piece, that doesn't occur before students read an instructional level text in a guided reading group. Right. Yes, your face says it all. I know the listener can't see your face, but your face (laughs) is saying, I know. So have you ever experienced that misconception from teachers? Yes, I think so. um, But I will say I have used choral reading in guided reading for, for a purpose and for an intention. So I think it's okay as long as it doesn't become the only strategic activity that they're that they're doing. Yes. Um, and it's intentional. But yes, I think that they're and and to also say that you don't have to use the strategy of choral reading every time you introduce new content. Right. It's it's a strategy. It's one strategy. Um, right. And a strategy that should be used with the purpose and I keep saying that but I I think that's important to stress you have to know why you're using that strategy and how it's going to help you get to to your goal right and that's really what you and I are all about is helping teachers know the why because if you don't know why you're doing what you're doing even if you see it helping kids you can't take it beyond what you're doing in the moment because you don't really understand why correct yes I think that we we maybe hear a strategy or hear um, a concept and think, oh, this is something we have to do all the time, just like this. Mm-hmm. And you're you're absolutely right. We're we're doing this to help teachers know. Okay, this is my goal. These are some strategies that are best to help me reach that goal. And they might not use the same strategy all the time, um, but to know that. Fluency is important. There are many strategies I can use to get there. 
I really like as well um, how Rosinski points out that it doesn't have to be supportive or assisted reading doesn't have to be done with another person. It can also be done simultaneously listening to pre-recorded version of the same text. And um, he talks about how you can make an MP3, which is exactly what we're doing right now. And there are a lot of easy ways to do that with students. Um, I know I come back to this app a lot, but Seesaw is an app that any kid can use from kindergarten up. And it's a, a great digital portfolio that you can use on your iPads if you have them. And kids can record, you can record text in a kid's portfolio. It's called a journal, it's a digital journal, and they can read along with the book that, the, that your group is reading. If it's really hard for them, they can read along with that book, they can quarrel read with that book. They can have extra practice with that text if they need it, and it's very easily done. And that's something at their comfort level because their, their technology students <laughs> yes i mean their lives are are all digital right now so right that's a great engagement piece okay what's the next principle so from best practices our third principle says um help students focus their attention on reading in meaningful phrases mm -hmm. so he's really big about using that phrasing to develop a more complete understanding of prosody and helping them move beyond that um, reading is just word by word. Um, that phrasing really falls into um, replicating that language. And to read in phrases helps them, they don't have to, like you were saying at the very beginning, they don't have to spend all that um, cognitive brain power trying to decode word by word. And they can really save that energy to understand what they're supposed to be um, gaining from the text. Which is reading. Which is reading. The ultimate goal of reading. Reading is to and understand understanding. It. I still have kids who uh, have a hard time remembering that when I ask them, but why are you, why do you read? To understand something, you know, to get meaning. They, they don't always make that connection. We don't always redirect them back to the bigger goal, which is enjoyment, which is understanding, which is information, empowering yourself. It's interesting. Yeah. And those, uh, re being able to read in those meaningful phrases uh, also helps the reader um, understand the author's purpose. Like, why why did they choose this phrase? Mm -hmm. What do they want me to, to gather from this text? What if this phrase is moved to the beginning or to the end? How does that, how does that change the intent of, of the author? And that's, that's deeper comprehension. That's, um, you know deeper thinking on the part um, of the reader, I think. And they really need fluency if they're going to yes. comprehend at those deeper levels. And if they're not able to read the text themselves fluently, then we have to put those supports in place to aid their comprehension, right? Yes. I think um, I want to point out here that in Mega Book of Fluency, um, Rosinski shares his multidimensional fluency scale, which a lot of us are familiar with. It has the acronym EARS, E-A-R-S, with E being expression, A, automatic word recognition, R, rhythm and phrasing, and S for smoothness. And I have found in the past that it can be difficult to find fluency strategies that build the prosody piece, the expression 
measuring a kid's rate and accuracy is much easier to quantify than their expressiveness. So um, I just want to point out that in this book, one of the reasons I like it is that it's organized so that you know which area of fluency this strategy is addressing, and there are plenty of them that address prosody. So that, to me, is a new piece or a stronger piece than some of the other resources that I've seen before, although Dr. Rosinski's put out a lot of really good resources in yes, the past. Yes, But this has kind of everything in one, one place. Everything in one place. And he co-wrote it with a teacher. Do you mind grabbing your book and look yeah. at the cover? I don't want to leave that author out. Um, Melissa Cheeseman Smith. So she's his co-author. And it is quite a book, so I don't know how people have time to write these books. <laughs> I would love to ha do it, but I always admire them, especially if they're working, um, doing lots of other things. Well, it, I appreciate the strategies because I feel like they, um, they are easy strategies to um, just kind of um, merge with what you're doing already. It's, it's not something that you have to find a whole separate block of time um, to do. It doesn't take up a lot of time. He gives you the resources already. You just um, copy them or put them in a PowerPoint, help, um, whatever your comfort level is to teach. And it, it can just fit right along to your literacy block. It's, it's not something that's going to take a whole extra 30 minutes, 45 minutes a day. It really goes into exactly what you're already doing. All right, after that characteristic, what do we have? So his last principle, and he says um, in best practices, the most important principle is that students have ample opportunities to read. And I'm just going to read a quote straight from the book that says, as with most skills, students become better at reading through practice. Although the nature and purpose of practice and how much support is required will vary depending on the needs of the individual learner and the difficulty of the text. And he talks about practices taking two different forms. Wide reading, which is just giving the passage or text one time, and this is followed up by discussion or some kind of follow-up activities to ensure comprehension. And then he talks about deep or repeated reading. Mm -hmm. And this involves students reading a text several times until they're able to read and understand it well before moving on to the next text. So I know that working in a school, there has been a lot of discussion around students, quote-unquote, just reading a book. I think that that also holds a lot of misconceptions. I think if you were an, an athlete or in any other profession or realm, we practice things. That's how we get better. But for but to spend instructional time for a student just to read is is not always accepted as a best practice of instruction. And I think it's just because we don't have the understanding of the power in that. There's not a product after that always. You know, many times we can write, we can respond, but to get better at reading and to build that stamina, you have to be involved in just the act of reading. And I think like like you said, Mary, reading's not all, it's not visible. Right. So you hear things like, and I'm sure you've heard this, how do we know they're really reading that if they don't write about it? Why are they just reading? Why are they just reading? Just reading. And, and I think that that's something that is hurting our students mm -hmm. right now. And I don't know if that's a, across the U.S. and other schools, if, if other teachers hear that too, but, but I've heard that for the past couple of years. Not That's not something that's just been recent. So I love that he says, finally, the 
And the most important essential principle for fluency is actually the act of, of reading itself because you have to practice it something to get better. So you have to practice it to get better. I want to add here something that he talks about in Mega Book of Fluency, which is that for repeated reading, which some kids, I would say many kids, need to gain fluency, that the repeated reading strategy has to be authentic. So you that means you have to ask yourself, when would you actually read something more than one time and change the way your voice sounds? And there's a pretty easy answer to that, which is for an audience, for a performance. Now we have ways to create digital products that we can share with an audience on our student blog or on a website, that a teacher's website, or Seesaw, again. But I think that that piece is so important too. I know my students really enjoy poetry and they enjoy the repeated reading of it, but they enjoy it most when they know they're gonna do a reader's theater for it. And they're gonna make some props, simple props to go with it, or they're going to do it and I'm gonna record it for them and upload it to their digital journals. That I think is really important. Motivation, that's a word he uses quite a bit, which, you know, motivation. We need to motivate our kids to want to read, um, repeatedly read a text. I really like, again, Rosinski's What Makes a Quality Fluency Activity, and he says, you're gonna like this, Alicia, start with a quality text, okay? So it always starts with a great book. So he advises teachers to find texts that have good voice and phrasing, and they're meant to be read orally with expression. So that would mean poetry, scripts, Reader's theater, narratives, you can turn a narrative into reader's theater pretty easily. But all of those things are important. And there are quite a few websites that, that have actually already had that available. They, they've turned a great read aloud book in, into reader's theater script already. Um, yes, that's true. We may we can link, link some that. of those. Yes. Um, because they're out there and they're free for teachers, which is, which is great. Another piece of what makes a quality fluency activity that in my mind speaks to what you were saying about administrators and others who are questioning the value of students listening to reading is the feedback piece. So Rosinski advises that you should, the students should always receive feedback when they've been reading to build their fluency. So could they get feedback from their own observations? Could they get feedback from a teacher, a classmate? They could get feedback from all of those places. And if they have a, ru a rubric that has student-friendly language in it, then they can easily score themselves. I've seen lots of teachers do that with their students. And I, I was telling you a minute ago that I like to record my students because they immediately know where the fluency, if their choral reading, where the fluency broke down and who did it. <laughs> and they all, you know, it doesn't turn into anything ugly or harsh. It's it's a moment for them all to laugh and say, okay, now we know what to do next time. And, and the student who knows where it broke down, a lot of times they'll circle the word or they'll underline that part and we'll practice it a few more times. So I think the feedback piece is really important. If we could show that to an administrator who's questioning some of this do you think that would help? I agree. I do. And and I also think if they, I think there's power in partner, partner reading as well and having, um, teaching kids how to coach each other and how to kind of prompt them 
when they're stuck, just like we would do in, in small group guided reading. I've, I've watched the younger kids especially kind of play school when they're independently reading in their book bags, and they are just natural partners. That, that discourse comes out naturally, and they um, I've, I've even seen a little girl put her finger in the book of, an, of a partner reading next to them when they're independently reading <laughs> and, and say, get your mouth ready, because that's the prompt that she... You know, that she that owns she's it. Owns it it's and hers. She has it. And she's going to use it. <laughs> and she's helping an, another reader. And so just taking that fluency rubric and doing that with a partner. Hey, will you listen to me and, mm-hmm. and give me feedback? I think, yeah, absolutely. And, and how, how powerful is that to, to have one of your peers do that with you? I think it's very powerful, definitely. I want to um, just strike upon the top benefits of fluency instruction and activities that are in the mega book of fluency. I just, there, there are a lot of these. I just want to um, point out a few. One is that it highlights the richness of words in quality literature. So that's that vocabulary, that tier two and tier three, if you're thinking about Beck's tiers, vocabulary that sometimes we really are concerned about our students not necessarily knowing but using fluency instruction and the activities, you're going to point out those words because kids are going to stumble there. They're going to need to know what those words mean so that they can read fluently. So I really think that's a really important outcome. And along with that goes an increase in student vocabulary. And which leads to their comprehension of the text. Yes, <laughs> right. Discussing those words. So it all goes back to that that goal of, of comprehension. Yes, and to add to what you just said, the increase in comprehension um, pointed out in the book is that it's paying attention to the punctuation and also the connotation of words through expression. So how many times does a word have multiple meanings and then you use your voice to convey which type of meaning it is that you're supposed to get from that? Well, students who are not native English speakers and haven't heard English language being used that way, that's really eye-opening for them. That's the first time they really think about that. And then unifying all types of learners in a community experience. I love that that's included here. And in parentheses, English language learners and struggling students, etc. It's really a strong practice to add to your literacy instruction. So how long did we say that is a good amount of time to be used in fluency instruction. I was thinking maybe 15 to 20 minutes. I feel like he said when we heard him speak 10 to 10 to 20 minutes, 10 at the minimum. I feel like he said five or 10 minutes each day. Okay. I I remember it wasn't a lot of time. Okay. Okay. 15, 10 to 15 minutes, maybe five to 10, 15 minutes. I think it depends on too where your readers are. Right. Because sometimes the texts are really short and it might not take you that long. I think anytime you can fit it in, I'm thinking about those, you know, those awkward blocks of time where maybe you have five minutes or 10 minutes right before lunch or yeah. you're coming back from lunch, uh, you have a restroom break, and then you're you're heading to the next, the next place and you have those, you know, five or 10 minutes lulls in time. That's a great time to just bring out a poem or, or a song. Um, yes. I remember Dr. Rosinski talking a lot about using songs to really 
build fluency and, and comprehension. And he really tied that a lot into word work, which we can talk about in another time. But, oh, yes. Um, that definitely could be a, a whole other podcast. I'm going to just go back for a second. Okay. When you were talking about the top benefits of fluency instruction activities, because, mm-hmm. you know, my brain is going to go straight to writing. And so <laughs> hearing you talk about all those activities, um, all those activities and building the vocabulary got me to thinking, and that's when kids really understand what they're reading and they take on that punctuation and those phrases and words. They start to use that language of books into their own writing. Yes. Because they start to sample it and take it on and think, I love this author. I'm going to use that. Or I love that phrase. It speaks to me. I'm going to try to use that in, in one of my pieces. And so it, it really does extend across your um, your literacy world, really. It, it all works together. And I think that that's the purpose of us kind of doing these podcasts in pieces, but to know that there there is a there's a thread um, a commonality throughout throughout all of this that just leads from one component to the other and they 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 all work together to make these literate people yes thinking about what you just said I want to quickly talk about why fluency is viewed as not hot quote unquote that is um, has been the finding of the ILA when they publish their what's hot and what's not what should be <laughs> when they publish those findings every year, fluency is often seen as not hot, but should be hot. And in the book, Mega Book, he talks about how one of the things that he believes has made it not hot is over-focusing on speed. So in other words, kids have been encouraged to read a passage and then try to read it faster. And it's gone just to the automaticity rate piece of fluency and that does not support well first of all it doesn't match the research that's out there about what helps students become fluent readers but uh, we we know that just increasing the speed that's only a part of fluency It, it is part of it but it's only one part of it we also have to think about the prosody piece the expression piece um have you ever seen teachers trying to do that well i I was gonna say and it sends a dangerous message to the reader that reading is about how quickly being fast Mm -hmm. and i have sat right next to a student and they've read really quickly not attending to punctuation not phrasing and they have no idea what they just read. And we hear that phrase word caller a lot, don't we? Yes. And we, I, I mean, I've seen my fair share of kids like that who can, who understood how to decode. They were able to break that code, but they are still not comprehending. Even though they sound fluent, they're not because a piece of that is missing. And sometimes oral reading is slower than silent reading. Mm-hmm. And we, when giving an assessment like that, we have actually, as teachers, timed ourselves. And if you are a pretty good oral reader with fluency and expression, it's hard for even you to make that that allotted time at yes, times. Yes, right. Um, especially if it's a if, if it's a text that you're not familiar with. Um, so I, I could understand if if doing that cold on a student, that's that can be tricky. Yes, absolutely. 
Well, I wanted to take a minute and talk about the fluency development lesson that you and I both received when we went to the um, in-service with Dr. Wasinski. And I've been trying this with my um, third grade group that I work with daily. And I have found that this really is a great way to organize your fluency part of your lesson. The thing for me right now is that I only have them for 30 to 40 minutes. So the short time requirements that are posted with different activities usually are not accurate for my students. It takes them a little bit longer. So what I'm really working on, as I'm sure a lot of people are, is being able to fit this fluency instruction into uh, my, gu my guided reading format and what I'm doing with my students in the small group on their instructional level. But I think it's too important to not address it because I know it's not being done in some of the classrooms. So that will be the only time that they really have a chance unless they're in an early primary grade to work on fluency. So this lesson has been developed by, again, Timothy Rosinski. And I think you can find a copy of it on his website. I think so, yes. Yes. It's in the resource tab. Yes. Okay. So we'll link that. But just to go through it quickly, uh, what the teacher does is introduce a short text and read it to the students two or three times while the students follow along silently. I tell them they're reading with their eyes <laughs> only. And the text can be read by the teacher in a variety of ways and voices. So that sounds a little corny, but... I know I showed you the poem I was doing with my first graders. It's who it's called Missing Shoe. And the poem says, Who took my shoe? Was it you? Was it you? You would not believe how many funny ways we've had of saying, Was it you? Was it you? I'll say, Okay, say it like you're really angry. And they just laugh and they try to make an angry voice. Was it you? Or say it like you're really afraid. <laughs> Was it you? <laughs> it's just you could do so many fun things with these poems and lyrics of songs and other texts that you can find if um, you give the kids a chance to really be themselves with it. Then after you read it, the teacher reads it in a variety of ways, then you discuss the nature and content of the passage and the quality of the teacher's reading. So what is this about? What do you think this is? How did you like how I read it? And sometimes I'll read it disfluently on purpose in some way to let them point out, you know, that didn't sound smooth. You know, you sounded like a robot there or you were going way too slow. I couldn't understand. So um, that's always a great option for modeling. And then with the kids, you choral read it several times. He gives you a couple of options like antiphonal reading where, you know, that's where one group reads one line and another group reads the other line. Um, I usually do girls and boys because I think that's fun or left side, right side, that kind of thing. And then uh, that, that the different types of choral reading just help give it variety. So they're not always doing it exactly the same way. And then the kids divide into pairs or threes and they pass it. They practice the passage three times while their partner listens and provides support and encouragement. That makes me think of that girl. Um, that you said with get your mouth ready. <laughs> I think she would be a great partner for another kid. And then they perform their reading for the class or another audience. So here I go with my apps again, but one of the things we like to do with our um, performance is we use an app called Sock Puppet. 
and you can actually design a sock puppet digitally and then some of the sock puppets come with uh, voice um, distorters and things so the kids can make their voice sound funny or if they don't really want everyone to know it's them reading it they will sometimes choose that option and then the sock puppets will be reading together or they can do it taking turns and then they can put a background on it and all those things and then uh, a lot of times they'll ask if if I can put it on YouTube to see if they get likes, <laughs> which is hilarious. <laughs> because, you know, it's all about the, so the likes on YouTube. They all want to be YouTubers. <laughs> but anyway, it's just a really fun thing. It's a great thing. And some teachers in this school that I'm in, they actually made real sock puppets with their kids. And the kids had a great time with that because they just don't do that as much, you know, as they used to. So then after that, you go into word study, like you were saying, and that would definitely be another podcast. But I just want to point out that it's important that you look at that language, interesting words, or, you know, for some of my students, it's going to be sight words that they're still learning. They don't completely own those words yet. I'm going to make sure that they um, look at those. In the Who Took My Shoe poem, there are a lot of WH question words in there, and those are typically really hard for the students I work with. So they found those and underlined those and practiced saying like a question. And it was all embedded in the poem. And then, you know, if you have a word wall that has interesting words, you can add words from whatever poem you're reading or whatever, you know, reader's theater that you're doing, you can put that on there. And then they take a copy home with them. And what I usually do is I make the copy they take home a different color. I use colored paper and the color, the, the page we use in class is one color and the one they take home is another color. So if we find somebody's uh, fluency poem on the floor or something, we know this, well, you, you need to take this one home or you need to put this one in your folder. Maybe. But I always know an idea is good when a kid asks for it before I tell them that they're going to do it. So when we did, um, we worked in this fluency development lesson and the kids were reading a poem they really liked and one of the students said, can we take this home? <laughs> and that's where they think you're a mind reader because then you pull out a whole set and say, hey, yeah, look, I have these for you to take home. And they all say, wow, um, like you read their minds in or advance. Or they say, are we going to do that fluency thing again today? Yes. Can we can we play that game? You know, that fun thing we did. But um, anyway, I just I think that's a great routine. I've like I said, I've tried it. I haven't perfected it, but um, I have definitely seen my kids engaged and they really want to. They want to read those poems, and they want to read them to someone. And I just want to point out again, you said you did this with a third grade group? Yes. So mm -hmm. it's still a need in oh my intermediate goodness. grades. Yes, yes. And I have to throw in um, a recommendation of a couple okay. books that have a lot of poems. We have Playing with Poems, Word Study Lessons for Shared Reading K-2. through Great book, great book. Ms. Alicia Merton <laughs> recommended to me, and... Um, I'm using it tons. And Every then, teacher I know that has used this, playing with poems, absolutely loves it because it ties the word work with the poem. Yes. And so it's not just a skill in isolation, but yes. it's tied to um, it's tied to a, to a, text. a text. And there are also Fast Start for Early Readers, a series that Rosinski and he has a co-author, Nancy Paddock. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. But anyway, these have been around a while, so you can find them here and there. And they really are full of really fun um, poems that kids don't necessarily know anymore. I know I just did Miss Mary Mack all dressed in black with my first graders, and they loved that so much because 
they felt the beat. They couldn't help but tap on the table, and I was explaining to them that it's a jump rope rhyme. Right. And they said, what's that? <laughs> well, we used to entertain ourselves by singing while we are jumping rope, you know? And there, so. there's great activities in this book, too, that they can do at home, like um, that are tied to the poem. He talks about clapping syllables in, in some of in some of the poems, too. So they do a great job of linking that from school to home. I like that school to home connection. Yes. And uh, there are, I, sh- I should have mentioned, there are a lot of phonemic awareness activities yes. that fit with these fast start poems because it's the listening part that's really helping kids to be able to do all the phon- phonological skills. So, Some yes. great early literacy behaviors in In a fun format and you know nursery rhymes who knew they don't know any of those (laughs) hardly any kids know those anymore well we've been at it for a while what do you think i think we're gonna wrap up for today all right let's wrap it up thank you for listening and we will link the resources that we discussed um, with the podcast and we'll see you again in a couple of weeks talk to you soon all right bye